0: Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Rick Aberman. He is a pioneer in the field of sports psychology and has been working with elite athletes and executives to help them reach their peak performance. One of his most powerful tools is simply asking the people he works with, how good do you want to be? In our discussion, Rick and I talk about how business leaders and sports coaches can help their people through failure, instill confidence in them, and help each member of their team perform up to their potential. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Rick, welcome to 12 Geniuses. I'd like to start off by talking about what you do for a living.
1: I guess it's evolved over the years, but my background is I got my PhD in psychology and, and I remember thinking, you know, if I'm going to have to work, I want to do something that I really enjoy. You know, when I was in graduate school, I wanted to apply my expertise to groups that I knew well. And I've always been involved in sports. My family was in a family-run business, and I saw the need for somebody within the business to have an expertise in human behavior, and, and I felt the same in sports. And so combine those two things, and that's kind of directed my career. And when you work with
0: athletes and coaches, what are some of the problems that you're trying to solve with these, these folks?
1: So, like with athletes and coaches, what you know, we're really trying to do in a very general sense is to help people to be at their potential, whatever their talent level. So, my job is to help people see how they might be getting in their own way. And we all do that. And we all need help to see that because we're limited by our own perspective. And so, which is a great idea in theory... But people have to be willing to acknowledge that they might be getting in their own way. And not everybody is willing to do that. And for some folks, that can be quite frightening. You know, from my perspective, I always think, you know, like, why wouldn't you want to know as much about yourself as you could? Like, it's only going to help you, right? But I also recognize that for really high achievers, highly competitive people we've spent a lot of time and they've spent a lot of time training to kind of ignore their inner worlds and 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 don't admit anything any kinds of weaknesses or vulnerabilities or things like that and so you know I think where I can be most helpful is just in that area helping people understand that asking for for help is a sign of strength it's not a weakness you know why shouldn't these people be as productive and as they could be and as happy as they could be obviously athletes
0: are human beings too but what are some of the normal barriers that they would be having to reach their peak potential
1: well there's all kinds of things and and by the way a majority of my clients are very very good at what they do some of the best in the world at what they do but that doesn't necessarily mean they're at their potential your high performers always have a curiosity and a desire to get better they're constantly learning and uh, in fact one of the things that i pay attention to is when somebody no longer has that drive to learn or loses that curiosity and it becomes a business and they're so good at it and they do it over and over again but then they get to the point where they're making more money than they've ever imagined in their life they have all the things, and they're trying to decide on their 10th car what that would be. And they, they've won all the titles, and they're at the top of their sport. And then they'll say, Rick, shouldn't I be happier? Like, I, thought mm. I, sh- I, I thought I would be happier. And so, what the, the point, I think, what they're describing, Don, is the things that have driven them in the past, that have gotten them to where they are, no longer work for them. And there's a ceiling or a limitation to that kind of motivation. And once they get there, often they're disillusioned and can face a pretty significant conflict and turmoil in their life. Isn't
0: that a normal human experience, meaning... Once I get my degree, I'll be happy. Once I get married, I'll be happy. Once we get this house, once we... I don't know what what you call that, the hedonic treadmill
1: or whatever it is, but... You know, in the old days, I used to refer to it as a midlife crisis, (laughs) these men and women are not, not midlife. Well, exactly. And now we know that we go through many of these things throughout our development at the different various developmental stages of our life where we have an opportunity to look inward and ask oneself, where am I going with all this? Who am I as a person? Where am I headed? And what kind of person do I want to be? And start to have some self-examination or some, at the very least, some self-reflection about what's going on in my life versus just continuing to function at a really high level, which we can do for a long period of time until we can't. And then that can be quite frightening.
0: You had mentioned the loss of curiosity potentially being a red flag. Yes. So what does what does that say to you or you know what sorts of decisions would you make if you were a general manager or if you are a coach when when that red flag is raised?
1: To me it's an indication that the person has gotten individual's gotten distant from their passion. They have figured out how to succeed and they're doing it, but they've lost the passion. And then the job that we would, that I would advise the front office people or the sports executive is to, or the coach is to figure out, and it may not be in their purview. There's people like me that can help them get connected to that passion. Like, what happened to that? Where did it go? How did we get so distant? And how can we reclaim that? And do we want to reclaim it? But those are some scary questions. That's a scary question for a general manager who is paying this person an awful lot of money to perform, and they're not always paying attention to the person. And by the way, either is the player. I had a Division One
0: basketball coach tell me one time that when they're recruiting, 80% of what they're looking for is from the neck up, yeah. and 20% is from the neck down, meaning athleticism and all of those things that's just kind of a a, a natural given that th- no these these athletes have it and so now we're looking for how do they fit in with the team how do they manage emotions things like that yep. and i wonder if you would agree with that 80 20 rule in terms of talent
1: selection or recruitment oh well at least and you know <laughs> i mean i uh, i've worked with a lot of professional drafts in different sports hockey, football, baseball, college recruiting, all those kinds of things, which are really, you know, you're trying to predict success is really all you're doing. And it has gotten very sophisticated, but I always looked at it. You know, I remember years ago, it was, I was at the NHL. It was their first combine, like football does a combine. Mm -hmm. This was the NHL combine. It was up in Toronto. So we had the top 125 Players in the world, and it's an international sport. And each team was represented by their scouting department, and they would, you know, be there, and they could have interview. Each team had twenty minutes for a personal interview, and so I'm out to dinner with these guys. And you know, uh, uh, the team that I was affiliated with at the time, their scouting department, a significant number of them, and I think there were about eight of them. Probably five of them had several. Stanley, Stanley Cup championship rings with Montreal, with the Canadians, which is kind of like, you know, the old New York Yankees of, of hockey. And yeah. I'm talking with these guys. And we're telling stories and it's getting late, but I'm thinking, all these guys do all day, every day is watch these people play. And to me, it's really easy to tell who's the biggest, fastest, and strongest. And you don't have to know much about sport to know that. I mean, you can see who goes end to end first or the quickest. And, and so, there's all that physical stuff. But what I was interested in was that, let's call it that, your 80%. What goes on that's going to allow them to either enhance their ability to utilize their talent or inhibit their ability to use, utilize their talent? And that's kind of the getting in their own way. And some of it is skill development, but I think that a lot of these things are how people handle themselves, how they manage their their thoughts and their emotions, and how do they communicate and express what's going on with them and communicating with others. And you know, I I want all those questions answered. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is the twenty minutes was me and the player, and I I don't really care how they stick handle. They're one of the twenty five best. 125 best players in the world. I'm sure they do just you, fine. You got that. They got that down. Everybody has that. But I've always told my, my teams, my staffs were, that I've been part of when you're going into these and when we're looking at talent evaluation, don't be seduced by height, weight, and speed. I mean, it's great that Aaron Judge is six, seven, almost 300 pounds. The guy's a monster. Now, it also so happens that he can hit the ball a long way, but a lot of people can. But he also has the ability to have good feet, quick feet. He can move. He's not slow. He's an athlete. And so we look for different qualities versus the obvious. And those are the differentiating ones. In those
0: 20-minute interviews, Mm -hmm. what sorts of questions would you ask to get to these intangibles that you're talking about?
1: Okay, so we know these are the most successful people. So I don't want to hear what was the most successful thing they've done. That doesn't really tell me anything. I expect that. But what I am interested in is how do they deal with failure and adversity? Have they ever failed at anything? Because a lot of these young people have done so well in their lives that they have a whole lot more experience at success, but not always so much at adversity and failure.
0: I've heard you talk about when you're evaluating talent or watching a game, but you could tell different things about players. Could you talk about some of those observations while you, as you know, not a a developed
1: scout, could identify traits about certain players? What I was interested in, not who can go to end and end with the ball and has great ball skills, but what do they do when they lose the ball? Well, that's pretty telling when you when you start to focus in on that because. People have different responses to that, and those responses, they're not conclusive, but they're important pieces of data that I would collect and see, and I could see. So, they get the ball stripped away. What do they do? Well, some of them get up and start yelling at the player or yelling at the ref for a foul. Others might be yelling out to their teammates. Some are just upset and pounding their fists on the ground while the play continues, And some just get back up and get right back in the play and try and make something happen. Things go right for people an awful lot, a lot of the time at the high levels of competition, but it doesn't always go right. As good as you are, you're still going to make an out. You're going to strike out. You're going to miss a field goal. Something's going to happen. How you handle that tells me about what competition means to you, your commitment and your desire to get better, your level of achievement that you strive for, all kinds of things. And at the very least, if we do draft a kid like that or recruit a kid like that, what are we going to need to help them with?
0: I think this is very relatable to business as well in terms of leadership selection and yes. promotions and, yes. and things of that nature no question you know the most credentialed smartest person is not necessarily the best person for the job how do they manage failure how do they take accountability yes. how do they recognize people when
1: there are successes my uh, father-in-law who was a engineer at honeywell for 49 years. He would tell me that they were hiring more and more impressive credentialed skilled people than they ever had. And I think that's true across the board. You know, resumes are really impressive. The problem was that as he used to say was Rick, nobody can talk to anybody. Mm. They don't know how to communicate. When something's wrong, they don't know what to do. They kind of disappear or they shy away from it or they get frustrated and the basic human skills of interacting with one another you know you're you're strong in one area maybe on the technical side on the interpersonal side maybe not so much yeah and those are things that don't show up in the box score to use the sports metaphor no question no question so that's why it's important to get to know those things and very rarely are you going to find somebody that has it all and there are plenty of people like that but most people aren't fortunate to get a whole organization of them. It happens from time to time. So what do we do? We try and recognize what we have, what we don't have. And we need to invest in our people in a way to develop those things so that they're able to not be in their way, to utilize their talents and their skills and to create effective teams or the whole system bogs down. When you think about athletes
0: And thinking about peak performance, is there an ideal state that they need to be in for them to reach that peak performance?
1: Yes, but it is maybe not perhaps what you might be thinking or what most people tend to think. It's not something that you can will yourself to be in. What I try and do is help coaches understand it would be the same for any kind of an employer. If people have talent, everybody brings something to the table. You want people to feel valued, you want them to feel like they matter, and you want them to be themselves. If you're trying to get somebody and you're recruiting somebody who you're trying to fit into a mold, that can work for a little while, but most likely, they're not going to be at their best. And talk about getting distant from my passion. You know, I got into this business because I got into medicine because I want to help people. And now I'm spending all my time with technology and electronic records and corporate medicine. And I don't have, I mean, and I've got to see 20 patients a day and it's got to be every 10 minutes. And so I'm not really helping people in the way that I wanted to help people. Now, yes, we change and adapt and we figure it out, but technology is... Wonderful. But what's happening with a lot of fields in business and in sports, we're relying on that technology and those analytics and all those things that are tremendous tools and information. And we're beginning to or have been ignoring the person. Mm -hmm. The person gets lost. And this is what we see. This is what I see when somebody comes to me and tells me I'm at the top of my field and I'm not happy.
0: We talked a little bit about failure, and I wonder if you can just give some tips for how a leader can help one of their employees or a coach can help one of their athletes overcome failure.
1: Well, first of all, we certainly don't want to ignore it because it's full of information. And when you really look at performance, we learn from the data that's presented to us. So I was a runner and, you know, you train and you train and you train and then you run in a race. Well, there's nothing like a race to tell you exactly kind of where you're at. So I might be disappointed and not have done the training that it would lead to the results I was looking for, but it's information. It tells me what more I need to do. What do I need to do less of? And so if I see failure as information versus what most people do is tend to internalize it as part of their sense of self is now deflated and they feel like I suck. Then we can't learn. And so we just try harder next time. And we tend to repeat the same thing over and over again. So we want to help people understand that failure is information and data that we can learn and grow from and with. What we don't want to do is base our sense of self on our results, because that's when we start to internalize when things don't go well. That's the there's something wrong with me, or it triggers my fears or anxieties, or I just think less of myself, and at the very least, doesn't help my confidence. There's, I think, what I call two kinds of confidence. There's the confidence that we experience when we do something well and that feels good. I was able to ride my bike without falling off. Okay, that's, you know, when you're learning to ride a bike, that's a big deal. Learning new skills when I do it gives us confidence. The trouble is that while it makes us feel good, the more success we have, the better we feel. And if that continues, and I tend to be talented and really good or smart or skilled or whatever it is, now pretty soon what happens is my confidence or how I feel about myself has now become connected to my result, which there's a natural point, but then there's a point at which we become dependent on that result, or our sense of self. And that's where we start to get into trouble. Because as good as I feel when it's working, that means as poorly as I feel or badly as I feel when it's not working. And so if we were to graph this thing out, since we know we're not always going to be successful, my confidence level is going to be up and down and up and down. And over the course of time, since we don't always get on base, We're going to be kind of an average uh, performer, which, by the way, is not terrible. My work involves helping people be at their potential. So it's not going to be sufficient for that. So now we have to look at a different kind of confidence, one that's within our control. I don't know about you, Don, but I kind of want to be in control of my own sense of self. Absolutely. And how many people you think actually do that? Probably not, not very not many. Not very many. We might know people here and there, but generally, not very many. And that's kind of how the world works that we are defined by what we do, how we do it, what we achieve, what we possess, what we own, what we've accomplished, all those things, which are all wonderful things, but we don't always control those things. So,
0: how do you? help an athlete or a leader or an employee create that internal confidence because it's an issue and we can talk about social media, we can talk about parenting and we can talk about self-talk, all of these things. Like if you can do that one thing with an employee or with an athlete, you have done an incredible favor for that person. Yes,
1: no question. Don, you've been involved in sports as long as I've known you. As a coach, would you say... When you run into a coach who believes in you sometimes perhaps more than you believe in yourself that that gets your attention
0: that's very helpful and and not just coaches but leaders too and throughout my career i can't believe some of the leaders i've had and the belief they have had in me and yes. it's without a doubt the reason why i am where i am yes I, and and i can identify each and every one of them
1: and, and i'm grateful for all of them. absolutely myself as well <laughs> and so as a leader As a business leader, as a supervisor, as as a sports coach, whatever it is, you want to instill the confidence that you see in that person and that belief in them. If you are working with somebody or reporting to somebody who you know doesn't really believe in you, first of all, what kind of effort are you going to give? And second of all, how does that make you feel about yourself? You'll work perhaps in spite of your boss, which, what do we call that today? Is that quiet quitting? That would be quiet quitting. It's exactly right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cost a lot to help people feel a sense of your belief in them. As a parent, that's what we want to do our, with our children. It doesn't mean that they can't do any wrong. They got it all figured out. That's not what we're talking about but it's not about what they do, it's about who they are as a person. So we often define ourselves, well, this is who I am, this is what I do, we meet somebody, what do you do? You know, all that kind of stuff. Well, I do this, I own that, i built this, and great, just sold that company, whatever. That's what you do, that's not who you are as a person. And that's what tends to get lost. Mm -hmm. We're such a high achieving world today, which is great, but we're leaving ourselves really vulnerable to be more average even though we're accomplishing a whole lot more so going back to how can we be at peak performance be more of yourself be your whole person i
0: wonder you know what has happened with young people on social media and it, when we we're talking about confidence being something that's inner for individuals confidence is being shattered from all of these external messages and i wonder how you have helped athletes and other people kind of overcome this desire to compare themselves with with people who may not be living the
1: lives that they're presenting comparison is almost always a setup to feel badly about oneself once in a while it won't be but there's always somebody that's going to be better than you i think what happens with all the information and our access, we are able to observe a whole lot more than we've ever been able to do, including the nuances of a friend that lives across the world and what they did last night. And we start comparing in little instances like that. And then we start to internalize those things because we've so analyzed our sense of self, we look for validation also externally. And we start to try to control those variables so that we feel better about ourselves. And all that does is reinforce more external dependency. So we wanna shift our orientation, be aware of how we've become dependent on things outside of us to determine our sense of self and our confidence and start to, understand that dependency so that we can begin to learn new behaviors to rely on the things that are within our control that have to do with who we are as a person. What kind of person am I? I don't have to, doesn't take a whole lot of time to be an honest person or a kind person or a caring person. I mean, that you know, sometimes it costs, it can, but doesn't have to. I can hold the door open to somebody walking into my building and they can appreciate that. It's like, you know, it's no big deal. But those are things that when added up are within my control. And so I think what we try and do is doesn't, I don't say stay off social media, but watch the comparing because you might be reinforcing something that's giving you problems around performance, because now you're getting in the batter's box and you're comparing yourself how you did last time to how your teammate's doing and how somebody on the other team, or you're allowing the competition to determine who you are or how you are in your comp. So all of that is externally based.
0: I was speaking to a class of master students, master's in leadership, yeah. and a woman asked me, now, how do you overcome imposter syndrome? And I, you know, I kindly said once I overcome it, I'll let you know, you know, it's something that a lot of us yeah. feel from time to time. And I wonder, I'm, I'm sure there are athletes and and leaders and and people, clients you've worked with over the years who have had this sense of imposter syndrome and what ways in which, how have you worked with them to overcome that?
1: Well, you know, I think it's, it's a, It's a really scary position to find yourself in, especially when you've been allotted a certain amount of influence and responsibility. People that have confided in me that they feel like they're worried about being found out. And you can usually tell because they're not terribly confident and they're trying to do things to demonstrate their competency and their confidence. They might act arrogant. They might speak very loudly when you're talking to your leadership class here, but the guy who always gives the interview in the clubhouse is not necessarily the team leader. It's often the person who wants to be seen as the team leader, but they're not the team leader. And they're trying to convince everybody. Like when you're really confident, you don't need to go around trying to convince everybody how confident you are. What they're really demonstrating is insecurity. Leadership shows itself in a lot of different ways. But when we start to see people trying to convince others, they're really coming from a place of insecurity. So they're trying to convince others to perhaps deal with that insufficiency or non-belief in themselves. So I want to work with them to help them, one, understand how they play into it, two, to help them develop that belief in themselves. How come they don't have that? They wouldn't be on the team if they didn't belong here. So let's start. Why do they feel like they don't belong? Like, what's going on? And those are the things that I want to help them get a better understanding of. In one of your interviews, I heard you say that leadership
0: creates an environment that is going to help people bring out their best efforts. Where do leaders
1: start in doing that? Well, I think if you think about yourself and how your actions and your behaviors influence others... That's a pretty good way, place to start. I thought you might say self-management. yeah. <laughs> self-management is what we would what we would do. You know, you walk into a new job as a new major league manager or a new NFL coach or a new senior vice president of sales or whatever. You might have a lot of confidence and belief in yourself, but you still don't really know if you can do it. And even if you have done it before, you're experiencing a lot of thoughts and emotions. What you do with those, is important because we're always communicating. You know, it's like, Don, you have two kids. They fall down and hurt themselves, and that might be really scary. And the last thing you want is the people closest to you in the world to be hurt. You got your hands full. But if you lose it at that point, what do you think they're going to (laughs) do? So you got to manage yourself in a way that you can make good decisions that will allow them to feel safe. Versus unsafe. And that's what leaders do. That's what parents do. Things are coming up all the time. We don't know what's going to happen. Listen, we didn't plan on losing our first 10 games. It just kind of works out that way. And now all of a sudden we're feeling like, are we okay? Are we, I thought we were going to have a good team. Well, who do you think you look to? You look to the leaders. You look to the coach, to the manager. And if they're starting to lose it, pretty soon you're starting to think, oh boy, we must be in trouble. You're not feeling secure, you're feeling more insecure. Because if they're losing it and not able to manage, it must be really bad.
0: In what ways have you seen culture really in a healthy manner created for teams?
1: You know, I think it's the effort to get to know people, which is... Seems like it shouldn't be that big a deal because you spend so much time together, but boy, it's getting harder and harder in, the, in a very seemingly insignificant way is technology. So after the games, you know, guys used to hang out together and talk about the game and eat. And it's not like they don't do that, but the very first things they do is they go to their locker and they're in their phones. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but instead of connecting with the person in the room, you're physically in the room, psychologically absent. You're taking care of your phone or whatever it is. Those kinds of things add up. Taking an interest in people, not just as a player, but as a person, I think is really helpful. Again, technology. The other thing that's happening, not just in sports, but in the business world as well, and we kind of touched on it a little bit is sports has become a very temporary business. I was last week with a university baseball team and um, 90% of their roster at University of Minnesota has turned over in the last year and a half.
0: Wow. That's a lot. That's college. That's college. We we
1: expect that in pro sports, but not
0: necessarily in college.
1: So if you look at the twins in 2019 to today, well, there was nobody. On the active roster from that time, the ones that were part of 2019 towards the end of the season were injured. And it's a handful of them. Mm-hmm. And that will turn over again. So completely new rosters. And so what does that mean? You know, can we do something about that? No, I'm not going to fight the transfer portal. I'm not going to fight the trans- transactions and things like that and the desire to get better. But what it does mean is that it becomes more challenging for us to connect interpersonally and invest in the relationships because we don't know how long they're going to last. Which means, how much do I want to attach? Because if I attach too much, I could get burned. And when I say burned is people will leave or I might get traded. So now now, now what happens is emotionally I become a little bit more self-protective. I'll keep a little bit more to myself. And so I'll gravitate towards the videos and the phones and and yeah, I'll connect when we have to connect and during the games and stuff like that. But it's not, it's no longer inherent in the culture. So s- similar question, but how do you
0: create these connections in a hybrid or a remote work environment because lots of leaders are dealing with that
1: right now. No question. Yeah. But I mean, that's, again, that's a huge challenge. So people have a basic human need of wanting to belong, to be part of something. We don't do very well in isolation. Now, when we have been in... Well, for example, when you're in a household of house full of kids and they're little and they're running around and you're managing all these schedules and you're running 24 hours a day trying to be a professional and do your job at the same time, when you get a chance to go on the road for a business trip, that's kind of exciting to be on your own. It's heaven. It's because you get to sleep <laughs> for a few days. <laughs> for a few days. Exactly. So we have a lot of that going on because a lot of the, our work environments were not exactly conducive to people being at their best. They they were a little bit, how should I say, I don't wanna say oppressive, but they tended to be much more controlling. Mm. Most people don't like to be controlled. You have to be here at nine, you have to leave at five, you have to do this, you have to do that. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't have to do anything, there are responsibilities, but, Sometimes I think that control has taken the place of actually getting to know people as a substitute.
0: Mm.
1: Not everybody works in the same way. Not everybody is motivated by the same thing. Well, which means we have to get to know them a little bit. You know, I've talked to a, a major league manager recently and said, boy, if I take the time to really get to talk with people, I mean, I can't get anything else done. That takes a lot of time. Now, the job of manager is changing. That's a whole nother story. But it is, as a leader, you have to continue to figure out ways to invest in your people so that they feel, one, connected, that you haven't forgotten about them, that while it might have been a relief to be out of the office, doesn't mean that they don't want to be part of something. So figure out a way how to keep connected to those people and what works for them
0: the best question that i've ever heard to help people be ready for change came from you and it was how good do you want to be that's such a brilliant question for setting up someone to change who change their behavior change their routine change their habits yes but it's a great question it's a simple question
1: because we often don't think about it as a choice. We just think it's something that happens to us, and we're somewhat passive or reactive in, in this. We're not being proactive. And, I mean, I've stopped guys in between periods of a professional game, and I go, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> and I go, well, what do you mean? What are, you know? It's like, well, no, why, why do you play? Trying to get them connected to their purpose and their passion. Well, why do you play hockey? Well, because I love it. Well, it doesn't look like you're having a lot of love out there. <laughs> it just, you know, you're caught up because you're upset that the results aren't how you want them to be. Forget about that. If you're talented, if you practiced, if you're prepared, just go out and do your thing. The thing that you say you love, the results will take care of itself. That's what we're trying to help people do. Now, that scares the hell out of a lot of people who are in leadership positions who are being held accountable to P&Ls and wins and losses and all that. I'm not saying for a second that that stuff doesn't matter. Of course, it matters. But you don't let that be the driver because that's not entirely within your control. As good as you might be, Don, you're playing another team. They can be pretty good, too. And by the way, then there's all the other things that don't have anything to do with the team, but the weather and what you ate last night. I mean, you name it. And so get connected to the things that you're about that matter to you, your purpose, your meaning, why you do what you're doing, and be conscious of it, or more importantly, recognize when you've stopped being conscious of that and get some help to get back to that place. And I think that's what leaders can do. That's what coaches can do. That's what professionals like me can do. It's at different levels. And sometimes we need different levels of help and assistance and that's how we get better.
0: Rick, this has been phenomenal. Thanks for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. In our next episode, Chester Elton and I will discuss the power of leading with gratitude. That will be the final episode of Season 8 and our focus on the topic of leadership. We'll be back in 2023 with Season 9 when we explore the topic of resilience with an exceptional lineup of guests. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.